Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com On Commons People This Week, from the Palace of Westminster's rickety old lobby room, Theresa May suffers a record defeat on her Brexit deal. You would say to this house... What are you playing at? What are you doing? You are not children in the playground, you are legislators. But the Prime Minister carries on regardless. On a point of order, Mr Speaker, I'm pleased that this House has expressed its confidence in the government tonight. Not take this responsibility lightly, and my government will continue its work to increase our prosperity, guarantee our security, and to strengthen our union. And despite cross party talks, a solution to the Brexit impasse still feels a long way off. Before there can be any positive discussions about the way forward, the government the government must remove must remove clearly once and for all the prospect of the catastrophe of a no deal brexit of the eu and all the chaos that would come as a result of that hello and welcome to commons people i'm arj singh deputy political editor Easing into my podcast debut during a nice, quiet week. Um, Paul War is here after his own bruising defeat in our Brexit vote sweepstake. I know, I said 95, can you believe that? Anyway, yes, I am here. Hi, Paul. We're also joined by Tory MP and Commons Health Committee Chair, Sarah Wollaston, who was nearly promoted to Prime Minister this week. Yes, sadly no. (laughs) More on that later. Hi, Sarah. Uh, Rachel Wearmouth is also with us. Hello. Hi. Hi, Rachel. So we finally had the big Commons vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal this week um, and it was rejected by 230 votes, the biggest government defeat of all time. So what did Boris Johnson make of it? Here's a clip. I do think that this deal is, is dead and it's very important that that is recognised. You know, it was, a, it was a, perhaps a bigger defeat than people had been um, expecting. Paul, is Boris Johnson right? Is the deal now dead? Well, it certainly looks like it's on life support at best, doesn't it? I mean, if you were kind, you'd want to put it out of its misery and euthanise it. Uh, But not to pursue that analogy any further. I think that um, the real difficulty is just the scale of that defeat, isn't it? I mean, it's just the size of it. I've been here 20-odd years. I've never seen any defeat like it. Because you had, even under Iraq, when Blair, a large number of Labour MPs rebelled against Iraq, you know, he had a massive majority. He could actually swallow that, that massive rebellion. You've got a hung parliament where if you've got a 230-vote defeat, you're trying to think 118 of those are Tories, then how are you going to possibly claw that back? And I, I find it very difficult to see a way through the Prime Minister. We'll go on to this later, what the options are. But I think it was the scale that really shocked everybody. I mean, I talked to one MP just beforehand who was going to vote against, and he was convinced it was going to be quite a low number. And afterwards, he was quite shocked, and you could tell he'd not, he wouldn't have voted that way if he'd known it had been so big. It was striking that the names that were on there as well, because you found Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, was on there, um, also voting with Johnny Mercer, 
Um, so it was really surprising the breadth of opposition to her deal as well. I think the point is that um, it was we wanted it to be decisive so that it wouldn't just be this, well, it just needs a little tweak and we'll bring yeah. it back. But I don't think anyone was expecting it to be that decisive. It was huge, wasn't it? I mean, it what I found interesting, Sarah, actually, was the way it almost exactly mapped, and you might dispute this, it, but the numbers mapped the vote of no confidence in the PM uh, within her own party no confidence vote before Christmas. You had 117 Conservatives who voted against the PM then. That was a third of the party, roughly, just more than a third. Um, and you had 118 who voted against the deal. Now, it might not be an exact crossover, because that was a secret ballot, this isn't. Well, it, but it, it wasn't an exact crossover, because I, I did Yeah, I mean, you were an example, yeah. Prime Minister then, and, and voted for the government in the confidence vote again last night. But I think that the point is about this, it just illustrates so, so, so clearly that the trouble with this deal is it pleases no one. It doesn't please the, the Brexiteers, the loudest voices on Brexit, and of course it doesn't please those of us who are uh, on the Remain side. And, and I'm afraid that is the, the, the reality. This is Brexit reality. Um, people were promised the sunlit uplands and uh, easiest deal in history, all of that, you know, cake and eat it Brexit. Uh, and in fact, I'm afraid this is the warts and all Brexit reality deal yeah. that's before you and, and nobody's happy and nobody will be. Messi. Um, Rachel, we're lucky enough to work here in Parliament um, and we managed to speak to some MPs around the building after the vote. What was the atmosphere like among MPs from both sides? Um, it, 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 was, it was one of absolute shock, I think, from, from the opposition. Certainly, it was. I think they, they were shocked as well to find that so many of um, Theresa May's own MPs were, were opposed to it and straight away there was the talk of the the no confidence motion straight to follow it but then it was a sort of strangely quiet 24 hours when um while we waited for the for the confidence motion which was a a foregone conclusion um and now we have all of the different options starting to emerge from people's vote to um a soft brexit option and um different groups emerging not not quite clear who yet is going to emerge as for want of a better word, victorious. But the trouble is that there is no majority for any of the options. And, of course, the, the people's vote is a, is a process, not a not a destination, if you like. And if you look at the all the various options for Brexit, be that a, a walk-away no-deal, Norway plus, Canada, any, any of the options, the deal itself, clearly, that there is no majority, and, and I don't think there ever will be. I think one thing that, that, that doesn't get talked about, which I find quite interesting, is that the, the Conservative Party also has a lot of Remain voters, um, which you'll, you'll need to keep happy. Is that something that you hear from your constituents? Of course, of course. And this is the, say that the tragedy of the whole situation is that it remains so profoundly and deeply divisive um, within both the main political parties. I mean, look at the situation for Labour now very divisive there too. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, so Jeremy Corbyn, we've touched on it already, reacted to the defeat by calling a no confidence vote in the government, which he then lost, um, meaning Theresa May somehow carries on in Downing Street. Um, she's now invited opposition parties in for talks on how to resolve the crisis, um, but Corbyn has refused unless the PM takes no deal off the table, and she's also coming under massive pressure to abandon her red lines. Um, here we will hear Cabinet Minister Amber Rudd calling for a reset 
um, uh, in her red lines. But the Prime Minister's done the right thing now. She said, right, it's time for reset. We've got to find where the majority is in the House and nothing is off the table. Sarah, I believe some select committee chairs have been invited in for talks with number 10 or ministers. Are you going in? Uh, well, not on this occasion, but I have recently had the opportunity to put the case for a people's vote to the Prime Minister, so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, that, that another invitation, because I think she's very uh, very clear, and we've had a, a very clear discussion about why I think that would be the right way forward. Paul, there's a lot of politics behind this, the, this offer of cross-party talks and um, Corbyn refusing to take up the offer. I mean, why didn't he accept and why did Theresa May offer these talks? Well, I think she, she offered them to him in the knowledge that he wouldn't accept. I think that's kind of clear, really, because, you know, they are. this, this came within seconds of them tearing lumps out of each other in a confidence vote. So, and Michael Gove, you know, last night did this great tour de force at the end where he really went for Corbyn personally, tried to separate him from the Labour Party, say, you know, you're IRA sympathiser, etc., Hamas sympathiser, you name it. And under those circumstances, it's pretty hard to imagine Jeremy Corbyn walking into number 10. Um, having said that, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't any room for grown-up politics where, you know, some people on some front, bits of the front, front benches can, can engage, because let's be honest, they do need to engage. Um, and I, I think what was interesting this week was David Gork suggesting this idea of customs union being a, a bit the flexibility on that. Now, since then, number 10 and others have come down it like a ton of bricks, increasingly like a ton of bricks, but I'm not sure whether... The, it seems to me there is still wriggle room, I've got to say that. The, the trouble is it's much more difficult to build consensus right at the end of a process, and this should have started a long time ago. And also, to say you're going to have people in to, to listen to their views, but you're ruling out right at the start of that process all, all the different points that you know people are going to come in and talk to you about it. Isn't that the problem, though, Sarah? I got the feeling watching that last night of the PM on the steps of number 10 that um, not only is she sort of devalued the currency of using that as a prop, that backdrop, it's now just kind of same old, same old, which is really sad, sort of the way that, you know, the, the authority of office has been diminished. Um, but there's a bigger point, which is that she had a sort of glint in her eye that somehow, you know, only I can do this. Yes. And that was extraordinary. People say that Theresa May has no ego, but surely you'd need a huge ego to keep thinking you're the only person who can do this, despite having a 230-vote defeat against you earlier in the week. That's the curious psychological thing, I think, about the PM. Indeed, um, and it's a kind of sense in which nothing's changed. Uh, everything has changed. When you have a defeat of that scale, everything has changed, and um, you can't afford to just say, well, I'll come and hear what you have to say as long as it's not X, Y, Z, and as long as it delivers Brexit, whatever. Um, I'm afraid that Brexit at all costs. Um, it, I'd like to see that narrative change to, to acknowledge the impasse because sooner or later we are going to arrive at that point where we either fall off the cliff and so in, in less than 70 days' time when this podcast goes out um, or we're going to say, actually, that, that, the consequences of that would be so catastrophic no responsible government could in knowingly and deliberately inflict that on its people that we need to think about what else and the only what else in my view is to present a realistic Brexit deal to the people with an option to, for them to stay with the deal we have and I'm sure that's where we're going to end up eventually and I wish they would stop talking about it as being some betrayal of democracy or that it cause civil unrest because I'm afraid they are going to have to wind back from that at some point. Do you think that um, Theresa May will eventually become 
more flexible or, or it will have to be a, a different leader? Well, the trouble is we, we don't have the time. This, this is the trouble. And we are really, it's like the hand breaks off and we're rolling towards the edge of the cliff. And unless Parliament does something to actively stop it, that's where we're going to be. And, and falling off a cliff never ends well. Um, we, we have to have some realism that something has to be there to interrupt that process. And, and calling a general election, in my view, doesn't solve anything, doesn't solve that fundamental question, because we have the leader of the opposition who still can't say whether he would campaign for leave or remain. Um, and. Ultimately, we've got to go back, answer this question, acknowledge the absolute impasse that stop us rolling off the edge of that cliff. And, and what have you heard so far about how the Prime Minister's conducting the talks? Well, I think that, you know, she's, she's, she's obviously having people in and hearing what they have to say, but there's a difference between hearing and listening, actively listening, and then acknowledging that things have changed, that there has to be a change of tact. The trouble is if she moves to uh, accept a customs union, she's going to really be in a sort of hard confrontation with the, the hard Brexiteers. Um, so I'm afraid sooner or later she's going to have to decide which way she's going to go, but she can't carry on as she is now. But if she, Sorry. if she goes for a customs union, she's already in confrontation with her hard Brexiteers, but mm. she could buy votes from the opposition benches, is that not a possible way I out? think the trouble is that the, 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 with that calculation is the opposition benches want a general election and uh, they're not going to be helping her out here, I suspect, when it's very clear their number one option is to force a general election. And Rachel, Jeremy Corbyn's also facing pressure after losing the no-confidence vote. Yes, yeah. Um, well, straight away he's faced numerous calls to, to pivot and back a, a so-called people's vote. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that's happened this week in terms of, from a Labour perspective is the, I went to a, a Left Against Brexit event on, um, I, think it was, I think it was Monday night, and two of his shadow ministers, two uh, very left-wing figures, uh, Clive Lewis, the uh, shadow treasury minister, and uh, Marsha de Cordova, the um, uh, shadow minister for, di for disabled people, um, they both got behind a, a second ref Brexit referendum, um, and that's um, people who he would necessarily he would listen to. And Clive Lewis had a very direct message for Chuka Umuna, the sort of figure on the right of the party, who's definitely not not someone Corbyn would consider to be an ally. And he was telling him to step aside. And a well, very interesting term he used, though. He said, "We want more diversity, therefore Anna Subri and Chuka Umuna should step aside," which struck me as being a slightly odd thing to say, <laughs> <laughs> because um, the point about the People's Vote campaign is that it is genuinely. I mean, uh, you know, since I've been involved with it, you have that sense that it's genuinely a sort of positive cross-party movement. Absolutely everything the public would want to see from politicians working constructively across party lines without the rancour. Of course we have deep disagreements on a whole range of issues but on this we're working constructively together. So it's a bit unfortunate to see you know, some figures sniping at it as some kind of you know, enemy of the left. It's not an enemy of the left. Does, Do the, does, the, people, sorry, does the People's Vote campaign need a specific Conservative Party arm? Well, interestingly, this morning I was at the launch of uh, an organisation called Right to Vote, which is, a, if you like, a conservative arm of that. Um, so that you know, people who are conservatives who want to be part of that campaign have a sort of routine 
uh, and a voice that makes the conservative case for a, for a people's vote as well, or, or right to vote, as they they're terming it. And it's not about fragmenting the campaign. It's just recognising that there are there are many routes in, and that, but obviously all the campaigns will be working together constructively, and, and that's a good thing. And I think the point here is that, that Jeremy Corbyn really got to stop saying different things to his different voter bases, and. You know, carry out the wishes clearly expressed and clearly promised that after the, the no confidence vote they would move to a uh, to, to supporting a, a people's vote or a public vote as they refer to it and next week when the motion is laid it's certainly my intention with others to be part of an amendment that directly calls for a people's vote and I think that will then give the Labour leadership a week at which to decide what are they going to do? Are and they going to get behind this or not? Because if they don't get behind it at that point, I think there'll be huge irritation. Um, because although it might not work at the first attempt, it cannot work until it has official Labour Party. That's what I was going to raise, actually, uh, Stara. Actually, if, assuming by some miracle Jeremy Corbyn comes on board for people's vote, mm-hmm. he still doesn't have enough votes in the House of Commons to get it through. How many votes, to Conservative votes, including ministers and others, Indeed. do you think you've got to, to swing that in, 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 in that yeah, amendment? I really hope. I really hope that Jeremy Corbyn will will firmly come out and whip in support of a people's vote and then what I would ask um, the Prime Minister to do is to make it a free vote on the Conservative side because there are very, very many colleagues I speak to who would like to back this. How many? It's very many. Well, the trouble is, it, it, it depends because there are some colleagues who in their hearts want to back it now but feel they have to justify to their associations and indeed to their constituents more widely that every other avenue has been exhausted Um, but they they firmly have the view that that's where we'll end up in the end Um, and they're absolutely um, determined that they're not going to be supporting or be part of something that delivers no deal. Um, so, so I think it's 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 hard for me to. I'm not trying to be evasive. It's genuinely sure. hard for me to answer that question, other than to say we could get there. I think with a free vote on the Conservative side, um, but it it might just take another step in the process for us to have totally made clear that absolutely all the other options right. are out the way. Um, but but I think we would all recognise that of all the options on the table, the one that the House of Commons is least keen on is no deal. Um, another plan to avoid no deal has been put forward by the Conservative MP Nick Bowles and that would allow Parliament to take over the entire Brexit process and guard against no deal. Let's listen to him talking about this and revealing he'd quit the party if no deal became government policy. If the government were to make it its policy to pursue no deal Brexit, then I would not be able to continue to be in the, in, in the Conservative Party in Parliament. Sarah, you were heavily involved in the Bowles plan, just without your knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was very interesting to wake up on the Today programme and find that there was a proposal that the Liaison Committee, which I chair, should, should take over the process. Um, and I think the point is that the select committees already do play a significant role in this by scrutinising and holding to account government departments and highlighting, as my committee has done, the, the dangers of no deal and all, all those things and involvement with what's happening around contingency planning. But our job is to hold others to account 
our job isn't to take over the function of government and the executive and dictate what should happen because uh, constitutionally that would be a, a, an extraordinary shift. And, and frankly, of course, a, a group of backbenchers can't conduct an international negotiation. Um, someone put it to me, it would be a bit like asking the referee to take the penalties. You know, you, 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 you're either in a scrutiny role or you're in that executive role. And so uh, we had a meeting of the liaison committee last night, and I think it was very clear that the, the, the very large majority of, of select committee chairs felt this would overstep the mark constitutionally and also that point that we've all voted by the whole House of Commons uh, because within our particular committees because people feel we have an expertise perhaps um, and also we've, we've sort of campaigned on what we would bring as chair of that committee but none of us at that time were asked for our Brexit views and I think you'd probably have to go back to the Commons and seek a fresh mandate if you were being there as a representative capacity and your Brexit view was taken into account specifically within that select committee. So some, some kind of new body would mean it needs to be I created. I think so. And of course there's nothing to stop um, us as a, as a group maybe recommending a body and having that open for colleagues to elect. Um, but I think we, we all felt that, or um, well, the vast majority felt that, that they, say, there was a constitutional overstep here um, that that we felt um, we, we wouldn't really feel it was appropriate for us to be involved in that way, but absolutely determined, yes, that select committee chairs will continue to be very deeply involved in scrutiny and, uh, and, the, and the Brexit process within their specialist fields. And of course, if we were taking over uh, the complex international negotiation, you'd then have to re-elect another group of select committee chairs because they wouldn't be having the time to be doing the yep. job that they're already doing and which they've built up expertise over, over many years. So, um, so I think for those reasons, uh, I think that's not going to going to move forward, and why I'm not planning to change the curtains in number ten. <laughs> <laughs> Quiz. Oh. One more question on yeah, this. Um, Chancellor Philip Hammond had a call with business leaders immediately after the deal was voted down, and he seemed to be, according to some leaks, reassuring them that the Bowles plan plan would pass, and therefore we wouldn't have no deal because Parliament wouldn't allow it. Does it have any chance of passing? Well, it sounds to me as though all he was doing was stating parliamentary reality, not his own personal view, but actually, look, look at the numbers, you know, Parliament is against no deal, and that's kind of an, a, a sort of obvious statement to make, but it, it's kind of reassuring statement to make to business, isn't it? And I think that's what was going on. It'd be interesting to see next week just what form of amendments, whether or not Nick Bowles' bill is part of this, but they will actually have to be the amendments and how they're drafted to see whether Parliament and how Parliament takes control. We haven't got long, we, uh, Andrea led some this morning only now uh, announced that actually it's going to be the, the 29th of January when we're going to finally see the votes. I think what Nick Bowles has identified is that it, there are mechanisms whereby the House of Commons could take over having a bit more control over the tabling of business because at the moment that's absolutely in the grip of the executive of the government and by, by changing standing order 14. But um, I think we're not quite there yet, but I think if push came to shove, and it looked as if the, uh, the, the car was, I say, with the handbrake off, was getting closer and closer to the cliff's edge, and there was no sign of government listening, uh, then that could happen. But, but ultimately, of course, within our system, 
Parliament can either change the government's mind or change the government. It's shown this week it's not going to change the government. It's still trying every mechanism to change the government's mind, and that could be part of that mechanism. Do you think that the PM might be tempted, she's speaking the DUP today, to just go down the only route that she might be allowed to keep the party together, which is getting the Tory party on board with Brexiteers, getting the DUP on board by going for a very, very... Um, a restrictive form of withdrawal agreement with no backstop and, and, and a proper timeline on it, and then saying, well, actually, when Europe says, come up with something, and if that got a majority by some hook or crook in an amendment, um, that then she goes back to Brussels and says, look, I know this. That you've said you reject this, but this is what the Commons wants. Well, Do you think that would work? I mean, yeah. Because, I mean, you've got an international agreement that's been achieved with 27 other nations, They've made it quite clear that they are not going to throw um, the Republic of Ireland under a bus on this. Um, and there is going to be no withdrawal agreement and deal without a version of a backstop in it. Even if we went for the Norway model, that they'll want some kind of backstop. And I think this is it. This is Brexit reality. And the trouble is, all the way through this process, people have been promised these sunlit uplands and the unachievable. And at some point, we're going to have to get to grips with the fact that it's either no deal it's our, a Brexit reality deal, um, which involves some compromises and trade-offs, um, or we say to people, would you rather stick with the deal we have? So we've just about got time for a quick quiz, and it's on rebellions by MPs in the governing party. So not oh. size of government defeat, but how many of the governing party's own MPs rebelled against the government in Commons votes. Scary. So, which was the larger rebellion? And bonus points for how many MPs rebelled. Crikey. Tory MPs in 1997 over gun control after the Dunblane massacre, or Tory MPs in 2012 over Lords reform, which was the larger rebellion? Ooh, I think the Dunblane was really big at the time, I remember. Was it 90-something? And I'm not sure how many in the Lords reform... It might have been very similar. I'm going to go for Dunblane. I know it sounds a bit odd. I'm going to go for Dunblane too, and I'm going to go for 120. Ah. Um, I'm going to go for Lords Reform, just to be contrary. I can't see your screen. I can't see our just screen. Um, And I'll go for um, 70. It was gun control. 95 rebels. Oh, that was close. You win the prize. 90 odd. 91 rebels. Over and we're covering some before. credibility after earlier yeah. in the week. Oh. We've got a couple more. Oh, Go. Gosh. It's Conservatives again, unfortunately. Sorry, Sarah. Um, so which was the larger rebellion? Tory MPs over Sunday trading uh, in 1986, I believe. Or Tory MPs in 2011 trying to get a referendum on EU membership. Ooh, well, the referendum, I think that was, a, was that the Magic 81? Um, and in and the Sunday trading, well, I'm going to say that's less. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say referendum's bigger. I'm going to say Sunday trading. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, let's take a while, but let's say 95, that was the lucky one. <laughs> um, I'll go for the referendum as well, but I might say that it's bigger, more like 100. It was the referendum. Oh, I see. Like, Paul and Rachel are right, and it was 81. Ah. The yes! magic 81. Oh my God. Well done, Paul. That's very good. That was, that was previously the largest rebellion a Tory Prime Minister had faced on Europe. Wow. Poultry now. Final question. Which was the biggest rebellion? Tory MPs over Theresa May's Brexit deal this week, or Labour MPs over the Iraq War in 2003? 
I think this is the Iraq War, because I think it was about 130. I'm showing my age now. I was actually here watching that debate that night. Um, about, I think it was about 135 Labour MPs. Massive number rebelled. Um, but still, he had this enormous majority, so it didn't matter. And, of course, the opposition voted with him anyway. Um, so I think that was right, and so I think that's definitely bigger than the 118 this week. Well, I'm wising up here. I'm just going to say I agree with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't ever do that. I'll tell you a funny story about I, I asked, um, you know, uh, the, the chief at once, you know, whether it was myself or Jacob Rees-Mogg that had the most rebellions. And he said, actually, he said, you're both exactly the same. But whenever I ask my uh, people, they always say, they who tell me that you're not a proper Tory, I say, well, it's exactly the same with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, really? Same. Interesting. <laughs> wow. That's that's. That is great. <laughs> Rachel? Um, I didn't look at the screen there again. Um, I'm, I'm going to copy off Paul as well, just because I'm confident he's right. Yeah, it was Iraq, 139 rebels, Ooh, so you were very close, Paul. Uh, 118, obviously, this week. Um, the rebellion against Blair's decision to invade Iraq was the largest of modern British politics. Wow. Until this week. No, well, yeah, oh, yeah of yeah. any party. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You're right. Of any individual party. That's right. right, yeah. So that's all we've got time for this week. Um, we're going to leave you with Tory MP Julian Lewis, who after days and days of debate on the Brexit deal, decided to make his intervention in just 21 words. Because Brexit should mean Brexit, and no deal is better than this bad deal, I shall vote no, no, and no. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.